You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, this is Dr. Jim Del Rosso, based in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I'm prim- primarily involved in dermatology research, at JDR Dermatology Research, and also uh, the Senior Vice President of Clinical Research and Strategic Development for Advanced Dermatology and Cosmetic Surgery, and involved in a lot of clinical initiatives. And this is one of them that's very important to me, Derms and Conditions Podcast. And we have a, a, a great guy and a very knowledgeable guy that I got to know actually when he was a resident under Vince DeLeo in New York. And, and he moved on to get a lot of training in, in cutaneous oncology and Mohs surgery. It's Dr. Anthony Rossi, based in my hometown in New York. And he practices out of Sloan Kettering Cancer Center uh, in Manhattan. So welcome today, Anthony. I'm glad you could make it. Thanks so much, Dr. Del Rosso. It's always great to see you and just hang out and chat. I call him Anthony, and because I'm an old man, he calls me Dr. Del Rosso, but that's okay. Anyway, so the reason why I'm calling you today is I've been noticing in the literature, and yes, I still read. <laughs> I still read the journals, and like we all try to do, try to keep up with the, the barrage of information. And there really has been literally a plethora of information on squamous cell carcinoma. A lot more talking about staging or grading, uh, looking at the behavior of squamous cell carcinoma. You know, when I started out, it was, you know, there was squamous cell carcinomas. Certain sites might metastasize. You get concerned about bigger tumors or maybe less differentiation, etc. But that was it. We didn't really, you know, talk much more about it. But now it's being looked at a lot more in depth. And we also have some non-surgical therapies. So can you go over your perception of sort of the breadth of squamous cell carcinomas and what are some of the presentations and maybe even histologic features that go into it? I think, you know, we're all in a busy practice. So it's not only great to try to keep up with the literature, but there's so much out there now with squamous cell and it's really becoming, uh, you know, really popular topic, not only for research, but also, you know, for targeted therapies and um, immunotherapy, which is really really interesting. So I think for me, you know, it's always important that when I see a uh, squamous cell that I really try to think about it as, you know, what type of squamous cell is this? Is this going to be a bad player or is this going to be someone that does really well? And, you know, I do most. So um, oftentimes we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg before we actually get to the real part of the tumor, you know, in most surgery. So you know, when we're approached with these, we usually have a biopsy report that that might say, you know, squamous cell carcinoma, invasive, well differentiated, but that could only be the top. And so I think it's important, you know, for all of us in dermatology to start thinking about the staging system for cutaneous squames. And really, how do you do that? How do you do the staging? Yeah, I think, you know, the AJCC8 is now out and even as importantly, the Brigham and Women's Hospital by Dr. Chris Schmaltz has really uh, highlighted a way to differentiate bad squamous cell carcinomas from ones that might behave better. And, you know, if anyone hasn't seen those recently, they did make changes to the AJCC. So the eighth edition is a bit different. Um, and so I can run it through basically a T1 tumor stage is anything less than two centimeters in clinical diameter. So that's something, you know, we could all look at, measure, um, you know, and take note of. A T2 now in the AJCC8 is anything greater than two centimeters, but less than four centimeters. 
So they're really going by size cutoff for the for the tumor stages. A T3, this is where it gets interesting, is uh, greater than four centimeters, greater than or equal to four centimeters in clinical diameter, or anything that has minor bone erosion or perineural invasion or deep invasion. So that's kind of nebulous, but when they talk about perineural invasion, they're talking about nerves that are greater than 0.1 millimeter in diameter or deep invasion, which is like greater than six millimeters in depth. So really into the subcutaneous fat and beyond. And, and then T4A, which is the next category, would be really gross cortical bone involvement or marrow invasion. So that's a much deeper one. And then T4B is anything with skull base invasion. So uh, those are, you know, higher grade. So what about anatomic location? Because I remember so-called high-risk areas, the hands, the lip, even the ear. And is that independent of, of size? Or, I mean, I'm trying to imagine a four-centimeter lesion on the lip. Would, would size adjust downward based on the anatomic location? It's interesting because the AJCC is really for head and neck cancers, which is um, interesting because they're not going by even like the smaller areas around the face, like the mask-like areas around the eyes or the lips, like you said, perinasal, the ears. But when we look at the NCCN, um, the NCCN does list different anatomical areas as high risk um, versus low risk. So, you know, we use the staging classification for more prognostic information, but we use NCCN to really guide our um, behavior, guide our treatment options. So it's really putting these all together that's super helpful. You know, what's interesting is uh, you mentioned perineural invasion, which with squamous cell, you know, raises a red flag. With basal yeah. cell, it can, but with squamous cell, certainly does. And I remember. When, when I started out in Merce surgery in my first year, I had a patient that had a squamous cell carcinoma on the, the nasal ala area where we were more, more used to often seeing basal cell carcinomas, but she had a squamous cell carcinoma. And there was a superficial biopsy. And I went ahead and did a Mohs surgery. And later on, she developed some symptoms. And in going back, we looked at it and there was this very small um, area of perineural invasion. And I remember the pathologist saying that was on my sections. Okay. That, that was on me. And it was a very small area of what, you know, and so now I, I was really concerned about it. It was my first year in practice and the pathologist, I brought it to a tumor board, get people's opinion. Do we radiate? What do we do? And the pathologist said, well, you know, I don't, the most sections, I don't have those. They're gone. They're frozen sections, and they have the cut, but we don't have a block. And I learned from that that if I had any type of squamous cell that I sensed had any depth, I would take a debulk specimen, and I'd either cut through it myself and look at it, but even more so, I'd send it, not as a stage. That would be improper billing, but I would yeah. send it so I had that block to the pathology lab in case you needed to look backwards. Have you ever ran into any situation like that? I don't want you to admit that you missed the case like I did early on, but it happens to us and we have to, we have to handle it. But have you seen cases like that with perineural invasion? Oh, for sure. So that's a huge point, Jim. I mean, it's really important, especially when you're doing Mohs. You know, if you get an outside biopsy that says like SCC well differentiated, but, you know, your layer of Mohs shows like a poorly differentiated squamous cell invading the fat. You know, you think there's perineural there because there's a lot of information inflammation. 
you know, I think that's really appropriate. And our guidelines from the AAD, um, even, you know, most college there, it's okay to submit the tumor uh, debulk for permanent sectioning because they're going to be able to bread loaf that they're going to be able to use immunostains if they want to and really measure out the, the diameter of the nerve, because that's very also very important in squamous cell. If you have a nerve that's involved, that's greater than 0.1 in the, in the deep dermis or the fat, um, that's really, it might behoove you to use adjuvant radiation post-surgery, even if you get clear margins. Um, so that's that could be a tipping point to actually in, use adjuvant radiation. Yeah, because the the squamous cell, uh, any tumor that that's a that is perineural invasion doesn't necessarily go fully circumferential, and there may be an area where where you're not seeing the underside of it. Your cut is missing that area, so the clear margins doesn't mean that you're you're fully clear. Um, any other type of tumors where you uh, basal cell or with the same thing with with perineural? We're not so, um, you know, we're not so keen on jumping to adjuvant radiation with perineural in basal cell because, you know, the studies haven't shown that we necessarily need to, but if there is extensive perineural invasion in your basal cell, it's something to definitely consider and to at least talk with the radiation oncologist. You know, there might be other risk factors like lymphovascular invasion or, you know, immunosuppression of the host. And those are other things that could tip you over to actually give adjuvant radiation. In squamous cell, we know it can make a difference. So more work needs to be done on basal. I remember a case that there was a superficial biopsy that was read as basal cell carcinoma. And then once the Mohs surgeon got into it, they saw fair amount of perineural invasion and the histology changed. It was a microcystic adnexal carcinoma and the biopsy was very superficial. Uh, and, it, and looking at it, you would think it was could be a basal cell carcinoma. So sometimes there are bad actors. One of the things that I do, and I, I was wondering your thoughts on this, with squamous cell carcinoma, any squamous cell carcinoma, I always palpate regional lymph nodes at baseline and then on follow-up. You know, because if you do get a metastasis to regional lymph nodes and you don't have that in the record, I always felt like, well, don't you know that that you should be evaluating for this? And yeah. we might forget to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, in a busy clinic, definitely. You know, I think it's important because if you're gonna take, you're gonna catch a, you know, a local spread to a lymph node, you know, you can you can hit it on clinical exam and you can actually feel you know, you can feel it when it's there. So it's, it brings up a good point because Chris Schmaltz uh, at the Brigham, she developed the Brigham and Women's Hospital staging system for for squamous cell. And it can be more, a bit more sensitive than the AJCC in actually teasing out the, the really bad players in squamous cell because she uses a different scoring system for tumor uh, grade. It's basically just based on risk, risk factors. So the risk factors there, and it could be a little bit easier to use as a dermatologist as well. The risk factors are greater than two centimeters in diameter, poorly differentiated histology, perineural invasion greater than 0.1, or tumor invasion beyond the subcutaneous fat. And if you hit two or three high risk features, that'll give you a score in the Brigham and Women's as T2B. And Dr. Schmoltz has shown that a T2B can actually have a higher rate of lymph node metastasis. And so I think when you're playing with those, you know, when, you're, when you see those, 
we really have to be on the lookout. Yeah, Anthony, be careful. You're making it seem like we should have interviewed Dr. Schmaltz, you know? No, no, I mean, she's, ama- <laughs> she's, like, she's amazing. She's one of our champions of dermatology. You should definitely interview her. I, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. So now let's talk about some tumors on the lower extremity in older patients, uh, yeah. or really in, in very tight areas. And and it, But thinking about older patients that may have several other risk factors, and at times... I've actually used intralesional methotrexate uh, on some of these lesions and have gotten excellent clinical results. I don't have data out five years or 10 years, but was surprised at how good they respond in patients where you're really concerned about surgery because of their medical condition and other other, uh, factors. Have you done that at all? Yeah. So for any um, keratoacanthomas, you know, that are like classic KAs, uh, they erupt. I do offer interlesional methotrexate because I actually did publish a study in Durham Surge about injecting these with interlesional methotrexate, and we did show a high clinical response and so resolution with them. The caveat was the ones that didn't respond are the ones that you should be wary of because those in my uh, small case series had perineural invasion or they were poorly differentiated at the base. So. And they were painful. They were much more painful than the others. So can you explain how you do it, the dosing, how often you give it, and how you uh, clinically evaluate response versus a non-responder? Sure. So if you have someone, especially on the lower legs, you know, very uh, sun-damaged skin, uh, they can, you know, they can develop KAs, especially around other sites of trauma. If I see a classic KA, um, you know, sometimes I'll take a biopsy. Most of the time I'll take a biopsy, actually, and it'll show the KA features. And so I basically use methotrexate 25 mg in 1 ml, and I inject at the base of the keratoacanthoma and usually at the perimeter as well. So right into the lesion at the center and then at the four quadrants in the perimeter. I do draw back on the on the plunger just to make sure we're not in a vessel, you know, just because we don't want to necessarily inject into a vessel. And then I actually will do this every four weeks for three treatments. Basically. And how much, How much? what's the amount that you're giving, the milligrams you're giving per injection? I give 25 milligrams in one ml, so one milliliter, yeah. And are you giving it into the middle portion of the tumor, trying to get to the depth? Yep. Okay. I give it in the center and then in all four quadrants at the perimeter at the base of the lesion. Okay. Uh, how many times will you do it? I'll do it up to three times. Yeah. Four weeks apart to see, but I see you should be seeing clinical resolution through each point. Okay. So you should see a response after the first injection. Yeah. And and maybe if you didn't, you might try one more and that's it. If it doesn't respond, you, you're, you're done, right? Yeah, exactly. If you know, for us in this study I did actually when I was a fellow at Memorial, we you know saw the ones that weren't responding were associated with more pain um, or really rapid regrowth, and you could tell that they were just regrowing and getting larger. And then when we did sample the base or we did Mo's on them, they um, uh, they basically uh, showed poorly poor differentiation or perineural invasion. So I wanted to ask you two other things. The first thing, before we get to the PD-1 in, in inhibitors, I wanted to ask you your use of those and pros and cons. But we also now have testing 
not only on melanoma where you can take the block, uh, but testing where you can get different types of genetic testing to look at the classify the behavior of squamous cell carcinoma. It's newer, but I was wondering if you can elaborate on that. Where should I be thinking about doing that? You know, it, I think it's still really a lot of research has been going into this about looking at the molecular uh, characteristics of squamous cell. Squamous cell is a really mutated tumor. It's highly, highly mutated. Uh, it has a high mutation burden, about like 30 to 60 per megabase, whereas melanoma has like about 13 per megabase. Um, so the idea that squamous cell is highly mutated. So people are looking into um the different sort of uh, gene expression in squamous cell carcinoma. We don't use it right now in clinical practice, but I know more research has been been given to that. It's something that may be right around the corner and, and pay attention to that. So I do have two other questions for you before I let you get back to your patients and, and uh, I file my notes away here that I'm taking so I don't forget. Uh, what about the PD-1 inhibitors? Where do you see those being used? What are, what's the upside? What are some of the, the, the concerns, you know, toxicities or things we, uh, drug interactions, whatever, that we need to be concerned about? It's a wide question, so let it rip. No, yeah. I mean, PD-1 in inhibition is very exciting. I mean, we saw how much uh, improvement we got in melanoma. And so it made sense that it's now being explored for many, many different cancers because basically we're harnessing you know, the immune system to unleash onto these tumors and to attack them. And the idea stems from that squamous cell has a high mutation burden. Uh, there, we do see like the presence of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in, in biopsies, you know, and that has been researched into. Immunosuppression is actually a risk factor for developing squamous cells. And we know there's direct immunosuppressive effects of UV radiation. So all on this has like led to using PD-1 inhib inhibition in squamous cell and semiplomab is now FDA approved. Um, as part of disclosure, I have been on advisory boards for semiplomab in squamous cell, so that's good to say. Um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting because basically um, semiplomab is a monoclonal antibody that binds to the program death receptor one. That's the PD-1 in, in the receptor. And it basically blocks this PD-1, PD-L1 pathway and that's going to help um, not suppress the immune system's response to the cancer that happens normally. And so by allowing the immune system to basically unleash and to attack these tumor cells, we're seeing a quite a good response, you know, a better response than we've seen with cytotoxic chemotherapies or EGFR inhibitors. Um, so, you know, in the, in the main study, uh, the objective response was about uh, 50 um, in the phase one study. And then in the phase two metastatic study, it was about 47. The percent of the patients is that percentage? Yep, exactly. Right. And what about toxicity or how, how are they administered? And what about what toxicities do you have to look out for? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, they're, they're infusion. So the, and the toxicities are not something you can just brush off. You know, I think more dermatologists are very comfortable now with like hedgehog inhibitors for basal cell where the toxicity, you know, once we stop it, it they, they go away, the dyscusia, the alopecia, you know, the muscle cramps in hedgehog inhibitors. But for, you know, for um, PD-1 inhibition, the immune 
uh, adverse events. So the autoimmune adverse events can be lifelong. And it's something that has to be really considered and thought about because not only do you get common adverse events like diarrhea, fatigue, you know, rashes is, is very highly associated. Um, but you can get these autoimmune thyroiditis. You can get hot, um, you can destroy the pituitary gland. Um, we can really see some autoimmune issues that can be permanent. And so that's, we can't take that lightly. No, I, I would say not. Well, this has been very helpful to me and I, I really appreciate it and looking forward to seeing you at an upcoming meeting. And, uh, and that was great information. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Del Rosso. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.